The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian an investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And I am honored to welcome my guest today, Dr. Robert Bielman. He is a professor emeritus of food science at Penn State University and director of the Center for Plant and Mushroom Foods for Health. His research interests and areas include the development of cultural and post-harvest practices for fruit, vegetable, and mushrooms to improve their composition, quality, stability, and safety of food products produced from them. His recent research has focused on the development of methods to enhance levels of important bioactive components of cultivated mushrooms in order to improve their nutritional and or medicinal value. I had the pleasure of first discovering Dr. Bielman's work during an interview with Dr. Andrew Smith at the Rodale Institute, and he was talking about the research that they're doing at Rodale looking at soil quality and how soil impacts food quality. So, Dr. Bielman, welcome. Thank you. I'm curious to know how you became interested in mushrooms. Well, when Penn State hired me back in 1970, they actually hired me mainly to do wine research. I had done wine research for my master's and doctoral theses. But when I got here, they said, you know, this is a developing industry, uh, the grape and wine industry, and we already have an established industry, uh, and that's the mushroom industry, and we'd like for you to spend half of your research time on mushrooms. So I dove into it from there. And were you delightfully surprised with your new area of research? Well, back then, you know, it was a long time ago, and first of all, about 70% of all the mushrooms grown in the U.S. were grown in Pennsylvania. And really? Mainly in two counties down near Philadelphia and Reading. And about 70% of the mushrooms that were grown there were canned. Mm. So all of the original work I did was with uh, canning technology. And they were mainly concerned about the shrinkage which occurred when you cook mushrooms. Anyone that's cooked them in a skillet sees how they, you know, they kind of disappear as they lose their, right. their, their water content. So it was interesting, but as time went on, we got into, you know, the fresh market started to take over. And now 70% or more of the mushrooms grown in, in Pennsylvania and in the United States are, are sold fresh, probably 75 right. and growing. And so uh, I moved on to trying to improve the uh, quality and shelf life of uh, fresh mushrooms because they're so very perishable. Mm-hmm. And then when the functional food movement started, and I decided, you know, I'm going to look more at the nutritional and potentially medicinal properties of the mushrooms. So that really it did excite me. And so even though I'm retired now, I've been retired eight years, I'm sitting in my office right now looking at Mount Nittany out the window I still have an office here, and um, up until about a year ago, I had a, a lab and was still uh, conducting laboratory research. So now it's mainly uh, I'm trying to find collaborators to help me keep my arm in the research area. And right. I do have a, 
a great collaboration going with Dr. John Ritchie, who's a biochemist at our medical school, which is located in Hershey. Unfortunately, it's 100 miles away from State College, where I am. But we have some interesting collaborative work going. Well, and I think your work with the Rodale Institute is also really important because there is this exciting connection between food, health, and agriculture. And I love the vegetable systems trial, the research that's going on there that he's heading up. In fact, that is the first time I even heard about the compound ergothionine, which is especially rich in mushrooms and which you have been studying as a protector, a powerful antioxidant. It's an amino acid, but a powerful antioxidant that might have some benefits in preventing some of the neurological diseases that we struggle with today, including Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. But I just want to preface all of your contributions today with the fact that I became a dietitian because of this magical food as medicine property. And indeed, mushrooms have been used as medicine for centuries, especially in Asian cultures. And they differ. When I go to the grocery store, for example, I have maybe two varieties to choose from, maybe three. You know, there's the button mushroom, there's the portobello, and there might be a shiitake. But most people, I think, like you mentioned earlier, they see or they eat mushrooms in, out of the can but there isn't so much variety. So tell me about the different mushrooms and how do they vary? Well, in the United States, the dominant mushroom is still the button mushroom, probably 85% of all the mushrooms that are produced. And most people don't realize it, but the white button mushroom and the cremini, which is a brown button, and the portobello are all the same basic genus and species. They were just a, a, a chance hybrid it was found years ago, it used to be that all the mushrooms were grown were browns, and somebody discovered a white button popping up in the middle of a crop of brown mushrooms, and uh, so they isolated it and eventually it took over the market. But now the brown mushroom is growing in popularity, uh, and uh, if they harvest them tight, you know, without opening and, and whatever, they, and small, they call them a cremini, and if they let them get large and open up flat, they call them a portobello. So wow. they're all the same mushroom, basically. Though. But there's gaining interest in what we call the specialty mushrooms, like you mentioned, the shiitake. So we have uh, you know, that one, which is being grown more and more. And then we have the oyster mushroom, which comes in gray and yellow and pink colors. We have the king oyster mushroom, which is a different genus and species, which uh, is mostly a big stem with a little bulb on the end. We have the maitake, which is like the hen of the woods mushroom. We have the lion's mane, which looks like a, 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 um, a coconut ball. <laughs> this is the way I describe it. Yeah. And all of these are now being grown, especially by some of the uh, farms here in Pennsylvania. And they vary quite a bit in their in their composition. And, for example, in this one compound that uh, you mentioned, ergothionine, that we have a great interest in, the mushrooms vary as much as 15-fold in levels, depending on the different, uh, you know, different ones. Unfortunately, I guess uh, the button mushroom, which is the dominant one, has the least amount, and uh, the oysters and the shiitake and the maitake have about the same amount, four, about four or five times as much as the button mushroom. And then we discovered that the uh, porcini mushroom, which is uh, 
only grown wild. No one can cultivate it, and it's widely grown in, in Italy. And it's actually Boletus sedulus, but uh, they call it porcini. And uh, we found out that it has uh, the most, by far, of this of this compound. But all of the other micronutrients that are in mushrooms vary all over the place as well. Right. After I was reading your research yesterday in preparation for the interview, I went to the grocery store and I bought some shiitake mushrooms. And I happened to mention to the clerk about my upcoming interview with you. And she said, you know, we're actually selling powdered mushroom now, dried mushroom, that people can add to like hot cocoa and such in case they don't like the taste of the mushroom. They can stir in the dried powder and get the nutritional benefits. And isn't that always the way, you know, where we either want to find an alternative or maybe take a supplement of something that was naturally found in the food. And I wanted to ask you about that. So the primary compound that we're excited about in mushrooms is this ergothionine, possibly also glutathione, and we are also looking at vitamin D in mushrooms. But it's the ergothionine that I really want to focus on. And are you seeing a move now to take ergothionine supplements? Well, there are. If you Google ergothionine supplement or whatever, you'll find that there's three or four companies and more all the time selling supplements of, you know, with certain amounts of, uh, of ergothionine in it. I don't really see it as a movement yet. Uh, unfortunately, ergothionine is still a mystery to most people. And so I even, I have a hard time even talking to most people about it because, uh, you know, the name is so uh, foreboding. And so I just call it ergo. Okay. For short. And it's a little a little less uh, foreboding to uh, to people. But, uh, yeah, it's still uh, it's a matter of uh, some mystery to people. But it's uh, the interest in it is gaining every day, and especially when some of the world's leading researchers are now studying it and publishing papers uh, so that the scientific community now is starting to uh, take notice. And eventually, you know, I think it uh, it will be a, a household name at some point, but I don't know how long that'll take. Well, I thought one of the things I thought was so interesting is that one of your researcher friends, pharmacology professor Dirk Grundemann, discovered that all mammals make a genetically coded transporter that pulls ergothionine into red blood cells. So we were designed to be exposed and handle this particular nutrient, which I find really fascinating. Right. Well, you know, that he first published uh, in 2005 on that, and that really was the turning point for a lot of people, including me, when because that was right around the time we were starting to work with it. And then he published his paper about the ergothionine transporter and made us think, wow, the body really wants this. And as you say, we've been designed to be able to obtain it from uh, from our food, uh, and it's only available from the diet. We can't make it. And so his discovery has really brought the 
interest in ergothionine to another level. Right. And in terms of, you know, my first question is, of course, wow, this looks like an interesting compound. It's a powerful antioxidant. So many of our chronic diseases are linked to inflammation. So whether we're talking about Alzheimer's disease or heart disease or cancer, we think now that many of these chronic diseases have a root in inflammation. So the more anti-inflammatories we can consume, the better. So my next question was, well, where else can I find ergothionine? And it looks to me like mushrooms are the main source. Right. As far as, uh, you know, foods that are available to us that contain ergothionine, mushrooms is by far the leading candidate for obtaining ergothionine. And the reason for that is that um, ergothionine is only made in nature by fungi, non-yeast fungi, and a few bacteria, including, incidentally, the bacteria that causes tuberculosis, which we don't understand why that is, but uh, mm. they are soil-borne bacteria, and some algae. So, uh, and mushrooms being just a big ball of fungus, really, when you think about it, that's why it has such a high level compared to, to other foods. However, Ergothionine is actually found throughout the food chain, but in, in very small amounts. And that is because our soils are loaded with fungi, and many of them have an intimate association with the roots of plants, even you know plants that are grown for food. So we think that the fungi make the ergothionine, and the plants pick it up from them, and then, of course, animals eat the plants, and it gets into the food chain that way. However, in very small amounts, in most cases, at least compared to mushrooms. So people are going to get ergothionine to some level anyway, depending on their diet. Mm -hmm. Let me take one break and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Dr. Robert Bielman. He is a professor emeritus of food science at Penn State University, and he is the director of the Center for Plant and Mushroom Foods for Health. Well, I want to talk about what happens in the soil, you know, really the magic of the soil and how we really didn't study agriculture with dietetics curriculum, which I think is foolish, you know, after the fact, but I think that's changing. And I love the work that's going on at Rodale because the awareness of the connection between how we grow our food, the soil conditions, and therefore plant nutrition. And you're doing some work or you've been in touch with Dr. Smith about what goes on when we use these quote-unquote modern techniques of agriculture that are largely dependent on herbicides and pesticides and how those compounds might harm the very fungi that we are depending on to increase the levels of ergothionine in mushrooms? Well, in our food crops. Right. Really. Yeah, it's interesting because... The Rodale people came to our medical school about two years ago and indicated they wanted to start a collaboration because uh, they have the mantra, healthy soils equal healthy plants, healthy plants equal healthy people. And they said, frankly, we have a lot of information about the first part, but not a lot about the second. And as a, they asked if there's some way that we they could collaborate with uh, the Hershey Medical School to understand that better. And fortunately, Dr. Ritchie, my colleague, was in the meeting that was held there. 
And he told them, I think I have an idea. I have a colleague at the main campus who has this very interesting theory about whether ergothionine in the food chain has been compromised by modern agricultural practices that might be adversely affecting the fungal populations. So they got very interested in that. And we did an initial study with oats that were grown side by side. They've been doing this for years, conventionally Mm -hmm. and organically. And we took the dried oats and we analyzed the ergothionine content of them. And what we found was that all of the treatments that involved tilling of the soil versus no-till methods had 25% less ergothionine. And it was significant for the, you know, even the small number of samples that we ran. So that led us to believe, wow, there is some really important stuff to be looking at here. And we're trying to figure out a way to keep this collaboration going. Unfortunately, so far we have two outfits that uh, that both think the other one should fund it. <laughs> oh. So we're seeking, we're trying to seek research grants and everything to, uh, to keep this work going. But uh, we had a grant to the National Science Foundation, which was turned down, and we're working on some other ones. Well, in the meantime, I think it makes sense, based on the research that I've read that you sent me, as well as some others that I've researched, that it can't do any harm to eat more mushrooms. And it looks like they have uniquely beneficial properties to improve health. So under the umbrella of first do no harm, I think it would be wise to go ahead and add mushrooms to your dinner tonight, if that's the case. I also want to mention something that you had spoken about, I believe, in the webinar, that oysters are also hypocholesterolemic. And in particular, you mentioned the oyster mushroom having a compound that is similar to a statin. And I I find this to be so important because statin drugs have some very nasty side effects, including muscle pain. So here we have a food source with a cholesterol-lowering property, why not go the food route rather than the more expensive drug route without the side effects? Right, right. The issue might be the level of it in the, in the that's in the mushrooms, and I'm I'm not fully aware of how many of those mushrooms you'd have to eat to get the right. uh, similar effect. But uh, you mentioned the powders a while ago, yes, and we're very interested in in that because a lot of people uh, just don't want to eat mushrooms. In fact, about half the population don't like them or are afraid of them or whatever. They just don't eat them. And so if we can make powders of these by drying them, air drying them, and then just grinding them into a powder, so they're really basically getting all of the goodies that are in the mushroom without the water. And it can be used as a food ingredient to add to various things. And we, I actually developed a, a whole wheat bread that, we had a small commercial bakery here make for us. We called it Brain Boost Bread. <laughs> and he had the extra loaves he had, he was selling, you know, to his normal customers. And he has people still coming back asking about it, but nothing went any further. But we realized that the ergothionine survived the baking because it is very heat-stable. And it's a very stable molecule, which is fortunate. And... Uh, we were able to get up to one milligram of ergothionine per slice of this bread, which I'm recommending if people could eat three milligrams more of ergothionine a day, that would probably help their resistance to chronic diseases 
significant length. Okay, how many mushrooms is that? Well, if you're uh, talking about the button mushroom, that would be a, about 100 grams per day of button mushrooms, so which to- is uh, like three and a half ounces. The uh, specialty mushrooms like the oysters and the shiitake and whatever, it'd be about 25 grams, which is a little less than an ounce, would contain about three milligrams of ergothionine. You mentioned that they're heat stable. I think this is really important. So we can go ahead and cook with them and still have the beneficial compound. You also mentioned in a webinar that I saw that they are water soluble. And I'm thinking about those canned mushrooms. And if that is all people know, I can understand why they don't like them. They develop a texture, at least to my palate, that is not very appealing. But if people are wondering, hmm, how can I cook mushrooms to make them just totally delicious? I highly recommend searing them with a little bit of olive oil, throw in a little garlic, and just brown them a little bit, and they just develop such fabulous flavor like that. And you can put them in omelets, you can put them with any kind of stir-fry, rice dishes. The possibilities are endless. But your research looking at mushroom consumption and rates of Alzheimer's disease was really interesting to me. And of course, these are epidemiological studies, they're not cause and effect, but it is interesting to note that populations that seem to consume more ergothionine tend to have lower incidences of Alzheimer's. Right. What you're referring to is a couple of years ago, I I saw a paper that was published, it was done in in France, where they uh, estimated the amount of ergothionine consumed in five countries. It was the U.S., Finland, France, Ireland, and Italy. And so I took their data and calculated what it would amount to uh, in in milligrams of ergothionine per day for the average person, the average weight, because they based it on weight. And it turned out that the U.S. had the lowest, 1.1 milligram a day. Finland was about 1.3. And then France and Ireland were somewhere in between, and by far the largest was Italy at 4.6 milligrams a day. And they attributed that to uh, a lot to the fact that the Italians eat a lot of porcini mushrooms, which happens to be this mushrooms uh, that have such a high amount. So one day I was thinking, you know, sitting here in my office, and that's the nice thing about being retired. You have more time just to think about things. You're not running to meetings and, and uh, classes and whatever. And I, I said, I wonder if, if I can get data on some of these neurodegenerative diseases in different countries. And sure enough, you can get that. Uh, it's, it's actually death rate data is due to Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and so on and so forth. And when I did that, I found there was this beautiful relationship where Finland and the U.S. had the lowest rates of ergo consumption and and the highest rates of these diseases. And Italy had the highest ergo consumption and the lowest rates of these diseases. And and France and Ireland were in between. So, again, it leads you to think that there might be something there. For a scientist, it forms a basis for a hypothesis. You know, is low ergothionine consumption contributing to uh, the potential for these uh, neurodegenerative diseases? And there was a paper published a couple of years ago by a real famous scientist, uh, Barry Hallowell. He's probably the world's leading expert in the area of antioxidants and free radicals and, and aging process. And he found that as people aged from 60 on up, the level of ergothionine in their blood dropped 
significantly, and it correlated with increasing dementia. In other words, the people in age mass groups that had the most ergothionine in their blood had the least level of cognitive impairment. At about the same time, a paper came out that showed that people with Parkinson's disease have lower ergothionine in their blood than uh, age-matched normal people. So that kind of contributed to my interest and to my hypothesis. And then this epidemiological study that you mentioned that was done in Japan with over 13,000 elderly Japanese showed very convincingly that as people ate more mushrooms, they had less incident dementia occurring, and it was significant. And it was like a dose-response kind of curve, as we, as a scientist would say. In other words, you, the more mushrooms consumed, the less rates of, of dementia. And incidentally, then I started looking at Japan and found out that they have almost the, absolutely the lowest level of these neurodegenerative diseases. And I'm trying to f- determine how much ergothionine they consume, but I think it's quite high because they consume a lot of mushrooms, and there are these high ergothionine-containing mushrooms. So I think we're on to something here. Yeah. Well, it's certainly exciting for those of us who are interested in diet and food as medicine. So I'm assuming that you eat mushrooms daily? Well, we eat them about three or four times a week anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I do take a little, uh, some mushroom powder now and then, and, and uh, my wife does too. She puts it in her coffee in the morning. Yeah. So do you grow your own mushrooms? Do you impregnate logs? Do you mostly buy them in the supermarket? What is your source? Well, at Penn State, we have mushroom growing facilities, probably the only university in the in the country that, that has that. And um, so I was always able to get, get them there, especially when I was doing research at these facilities. But we have some really good grocery stores in State College that have a large selection of these specialty mushrooms that right. are available. Yeah. Now, a lot of people here in the Midwest where I live go hunting for morels. Have you looked at the ergothionine level in those? Yes. We just had a couple of dried samples that we got in the grocery store of morels at the time we were doing this work. And uh, we found that they're definitely higher than the button mushroom, probably about the same level as uh you know, shiitakes and oysters and whatever, but not anything comparable to the porcinis, which we thought maybe they would be since they're wild uh, as well. Right. Thinking that maybe uh, something grown in the wild would be producing more of this as a way of uh, protecting itself from uh, invasion. I would think that as more agricultural departments look towards agroforestry and finding crops to grow as alternatives to some of the traditional commodity crops, I think that you're really onto something with these mushrooms, and I think that our our knowledge about their benefits um, here, at least here in the United States, really has a lot of room for growth and understanding. So I really appreciate all of the research that you've been doing. I want to direct our listeners to your website. I will provide a link to your center for research, as well as your Penn State page, and a link to an article that you wrote in The Conversation, How the Lowly Mushroom is Becoming a Nutritional Star. We're going to wrap up, but is there anything that I've neglected to ask that you want to share with our listeners? Well, I think what I'd like to uh, leave them with is what we need is a human clinical study to uh, show that uh, consuming more mushrooms have 
a mitigation effect on these diseases. That's the only way the scientific community will accept it. Exactly. And probably the only way that consumers will accept it. Absolutely. So I'm, I'm trying to seek out funding and collaborators to do that kind of work. Wonderful. Well, thank you. We'll provide links again to your website where people can learn more. In closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And I especially want to thank my guest, Dr. Robert Bielman, Professor Emeritus of Food Science at Penn State University and Director of the Center for Plant and Mushroom Foods for Health. Thank you so much for spending time with me today. Great. Thank you. Thank you.